This is the Science of Sex, a podcast about the ins and outs of the latest research about everyone's favorite topic. Hosted by Dr. Jana, a sex researcher and professor of human sexuality at NYU, and Joe Partavila, the guy who's a fan of sex. Hey now. Here's Dr. Jana and Joe. Dr. Jana. Hello. This is it. Episode number 28, Sex Question Palooza, the sequel. <laughs> number two, right? You always like the second time around. Second time around is always better than the first time around, isn't it, it usually? Uh, depends. Is it for you? Oh, you've forgotten. Oh, hey, yeah, it hasn't been wow. the second time for you. Holy With cow. anybody in a really, really, really long wow. time. Okay, we're, we're getting off the tracks here. <laughs> so for a lot of people, the second time around is better because you know each other a little better, mm-hmm. right? You kind of have a general sense of what the person might want. Yes, that's what I'm you talking feel about. feel a little com- more comfortable yes. and all that. Hopefully the first time was good enough to warrant a second time. Correct, yes. So, yes, for the vast majority of people, I think that is true most of the time. But not always, not always. Some some of us actually really like novelty. Right. Like the novelty some aspect of us, Some of, of us it. like it more than others, a lot more than others. Absolutely. <laughs> and I'm Ab- looking at my co-host right now. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Some of us like novelty a lot more than other people do. And for those people, very often the first time can be super, super highly exciting mm. because of that novelty aspect, right. whereas the second time the novelty is lower. So it might not be the benefits of you know knowing each other yeah. a little better and all of those things that we just mentioned. They may not offset the fact that the novelty is lacking, especially if the sex was mediocre, yeah. I guess. Mediocre f- first sex can be, for the novelty seekers, more fun than mediocre second sex. Although, I mean, hanging out for six months, the one thing I have learned is mm-hmm. a lot of women do not experience orgasms on casual hookups because the guy or the partner doesn't exactly know what they're doing until the second time around. Wow, you have learned. Ah! You've been paying attention, haven't you? That was all part of that. I did that organically at the beginning. You you didn't even know what was happening just then. No, I did not. It just hit you. I'm (laughs) impressed. You've grown so much. It just like hits you. (laughs) One of those things that you show up at one of your parties and that something hits you. But anyway, so this is a Sex Question Palooza. So this show is all about you. And before we start, you said we have some great questions we're going to get to. Yes, we do. And we encourage people to write more questions because every now and then we're going to be doing one of these Sex Question Paloozas. I love it. I love how you're owning it now. I love it. Because I'm the star of this one. Yeah. I am the interview guest. Yeah. All right. right. Anyway, uh, (laughs) you you have the sex science social coming up. It's the last one. We're talking about sequels. And now this is like, was it a trilogy or was it a saga? How many were there of your sex science socials? What's when there are four? What's Uh, that called? They usually call it a saga. Saga. A saga, yeah. Oh, so, yeah, okay, it's so saga, the, I guess, because it's number four. Oh, the end of your sex saga. Hey! <laughs> oh, sex love it. science social saga. saga. All right. It's a lot of S's. It's a lot of S's. But tell us, so people who are just joining us for the first time, what happens at your sex science socials? So these are events that happen about once a month at the... Hacienda Villa in Brooklyn, which is a sex-positive intentional community that has an event space where we all get together and for a couple hours we geek out on a sex science topic. Mm-hmm. And this particular one is the end, as you said, the fourth and last installment of a four-part series on open relationships. The first one was, are humans non-monogamous or monogamous by nature? The second one was, how do monogamous and non-monogamous relationships and people compare to one another? The third one was, figuring out if non-monogamy is right for you. And then this fourth one is, kind of figuring out what your specific open relationship style might be because there are just so many different ways to organize and arrange 
a open relationship. And so there's spreadsheets, there's all that. Yeah, Google <laughs> calendars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of those things. So, <laughs> so that's what we're going to talk about. There'll be some uh, exercises to facilitate people thinking about what kinds of open relationships that 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 might uh, work for them or not work for them, depending on what their own needs and desires are compared to what their partner's needs and desires are, and then the limitations, the anxieties or fears that they may have about what their partner is doing or their partner might have about what they're doing. And so kind of trying to find the overlap Okay. That is the right for them. It's going to be on April 26th at 8 p.m. And for those of you who can't show up in person, there is always a live stream that's going to go on my Facebook profile and Dr. Jana profile. And people can watch it at any time, place. And you can get your tickets on Eventbrite. Just Google Sex Science Social and it will come up right as the event. Yes. Cool. Now, I, to borrow a more uh, movie motifs, you know, with uh, I know you're not a big pop culture fan there, uh, Dr. Jana, but most sagas or franchises, they sort of wane towards the end. So this being the oh. fourth one, do you, do you see the decline in this entire saga or do you see this you're going on a high note? I like to think of all of them as parents think about their children, oh, okay. right? Mm-hmm. They, they're all amazing. Yeah. They can be all very different okay. and they love them equally. And that's how I think about all of my sex and socials. So how about that? What an answer. I love it. <laughs> the Science of Sex. All right, let's get to the sex question palooza. Dr. Jana, are you ready? I'm ready. Hit it. This comes from our friend Sarah. She says, what role does sexual chemistry have in determining whether casual sex encounters end in orgasms slash greater sexual pleasure? Mm, This is right up my alley. Casual sex. Really? Don't you have like a PhD in that or something like that? Yeah, exactly. So this is an interesting question because so I think... There's no like one definition of what sexual chemistry is, but people very often use that to denote a mix of things that go together, like really strong physical attraction on both sides. Okay. So it's not just like, oh yeah, you're cute, but no, it's like, oh my God, I want to ravish you. You're so hot. And that the other person feels that as well. And then there's also some, something more that there is some kind of connection there, whether it's, it's more of a physical, like the touch feels really different. Mm. You're in sync with the other person in terms of, in terms of that physical dance. And maybe it's something more of an intellectual connection or a spiritual connection or whatever. Maybe even pheromones that are yeah. compatible because we do know that they're this olfactory system that some people are more compatible on or not. So I think... Well, if- I guess the first thing you need to answer is what sexual chemistry <laughs> is, right? Yeah, right. Because right, there's right. a lot there. Right. So try to help out Sarah here. What role does sexual chemistry, that the thing you're talking about, the thing, that conglomeration mm-hmm. of things, mm-hmm. what does that have to do with greater orgasms? Or everything. Greater, everything. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not everything. I, you need certainly other factors as well, but mm. sexual chemistry is a great place to start for having orgasms and greater sexual pleasure for everybody involved. And this is especially important for women in order to have pleasure and orgasms. And yeah, so absolutely. Research does show that the more attracted you are to the person, the more into the person you are, the more passion and intimacy there is in a any given casual encounter, the more satisfying that encounter gets rated by both parties, not just men or women, but by everybody. So, and the higher the rates of orgasm. So absolutely, I would say if you're going to go and hook up and you want to maximize your chances of experiencing pleasure and giving the other person pleasure, make sure there is pretty strong sexual chemistry between the two of you. I almost wish that Sarah was a little more specific because casual sex is just, it's 
it's not as simple as a hookup or as a one night stand. It's many things. So basically, I don't know whether Sarah meant a one night stand, friends with benefits, friends with benefits. Yeah. It but runs it, a gamut for uh, sexual, you know. Absolutely, it, it runs a gamut. There are lots of different kinds of casual sex, but it doesn't really matter. Okay. No matter what kind of casual sex you're having in terms of your relationship with that person, whether you are never going to see them again or it's a long-term fuck buddy and friends with benefits, the more sexual chemistry, if you're defining that as passion and intimacy and attraction there is, the higher likelihood of orgasm and pleasure. So yes, absolutely. So our next question has something to do with uh, an earlier episode we covered. Remember we covered cuckolding? Yeah, yes. I do. So this is a. I've been getting a lot of yeah. emails and questions about cuckolding. It's pretty interesting. That was a very popular episode. Uh-huh. People seem to really get into it. And because- yeah, and I did this YouTube video about cuckolding, mm. answering a couple's question that they had about cuckolding, and I've gotten just so much feedback on that. Yeah. So here's the cuckolding question, Dr. Jana. Okay. My girlfriend and I are new to a cock hot wife situation. Six months into our adventure, I can admit we both have respect for each other and the lifestyle. However, I want to ask you from a female's point of view, something to do with a past lover, our now current bull. So basically, the bull in this cuckold situation is her past lover. Mm-hmm. And that seems like it can make things very complicated <laughs> because from what we've talked about in the past, the, uh, the bull just pops in. You know, for lack of a better term, <laughs> has sex and it's over. But this bull in this relationship had a past relationship. So the cuckold's question is, can a woman separate her friendship with her lover and the sex as to keep me happy and not get emotionally involved with two men? Yes, it's a it's a case where the bull is a past lover and also the way the, the boyfriend, the cuckold here, is describing the situation. The bull is more attractive than him, has a bigger penis than him, mm. is a lot better lover than him. And so there is this sense of maybe inadequacy, uh, which is very often part of, totally. the, of the thrill mm-hmm. and the excitement of the cuckold lifestyle. But there might be some fear or anxiety in, in the cuckold here that maybe she is going to leave him for the bull mm. because the bull has all these qualities and also because they've had this past relationship it's not just a purely casual scenario right. now it's not necessarily that the cuckold bull whatever scenarios are always the bull has to be a purely casual person who pops in and out <laughs> right. in uh, in a very short period of time just for sex sometimes people develop friendships and and longer relationships in in one way shape or form it can certainly get more complicated if there is more communication, if there is uh, more frequent and more intense communication, yeah. both sexual and non-sexual. The way he describes, they are sort of seeing each other on a somewhat regular basis. They are uh, texting and so on. And and so there is greater danger, if you will, yeah. that she might develop an emotional connection and bond to the bull and, and desire to leave him. The uncommon thing here, Dr. John, is he uses the phrase... Her friendship. Mm. He's a friend who parachutes in as a bull, <laughs> but then after they're done, they're still friends and they're hanging well, out doing sh- things. Sure. I mean, she's he, probably like a friends with benefits, right? The only difference here is that she has a long-term relationship with somebody else. If the question is, can a woman separate her friendship yeah. with her lover and, and the sex as to kind of keep me happy <laughs> and not leave me and mm. not become emotionally involved with two men the answer is absolutely yes women like men can do that people can compartmentalize these things and they can keep them separate is she going to keep them separate is she 
this person in particular going to do that? We don't know. The people are different. These things can get mixed up, and we know that for both men and women. Women are somewhat more likely than men to develop emotional bonds with people that they're having amazing sex with. So mm. that's certainly possible, but that's not a given that she's going to. If there are other reasons why she thinks that this person is not a good long-term partner, and I think in the description, the cuckold says that one of the reasons that they didn't end up dating long-term was that he had bipolar issues. Oh. And so it, it is very possible for you to have a good friends with benefits mm -hmm. lover, occasional or even regular lover with somebody that you don't want to be long-term partners with because you know that long-term relationship with this person is not going to work out. And especially if you have a long-term relationship with someone that you like and love and you get along and you feel like you're compatible and he allows you to fuck this other guy who's an amazing lover yeah. every now and then and then talk about it or write about it or take videos of it and kind of incorporate this really exciting sexual adventurousness into your current relationship, then it is absolutely possible that this could be a sustainable scenario long term. Our next question comes from Brandy. I'm currently living in France and recently there was an article posted about the first doll brothel opening in Paris. Doll brothel? Yes. Imagine a sex club but with dolls for men to have intercourse with. <laughs> the biggest article that came out about it spoke about the dolls who are programmed to respond like rape victims. They mm. say things like, quote, no and don't and other please. Is this not reinforcing rape culture? Or is it actually an outlet for men who have fantasies that they can't carry out with willing women? Is it a deterrent for possible future crime? Wow, that is a fascinating question. I mean, <laughs> I think it, it's, it definitely is in a way of reinforcing rape culture. Why? Because it's saying, we know rape is bad, but you should try this where you can actually do the rape, but it's a robot. That's it's a doll, that's, not a robot. Well, it's well, it's gonna be a it's gonna be a I'm, it's gonna be a robot it's, it's at some be, point. But right be, now, yeah. it's a doll. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I, I believe it is because it's instead of telling people rape's bad, it's like you know rape is not not good. But listen, if you want to do it, you can do it over here. But what is rape? Rape is uh, as unconsensual sex. Right. Having sex with someone who does not and is very clear about not wanting you to have sex with them. Correct. It's a, this is a doll. Right, but the question so, is rape culture. It's just the thought. Well, I, I, I think she, she's not saying is this not if saying is this rape is wrong or right. She's asking well, the question no, is, is it is it, is it reinforcing rape culture? And I think what that what what she means by that is is this going to get these men to then go out and actually rape or coerce live women? Yeah, right. Or is this? a way for men who have some of these desires to get them out in a way that doesn't hurt anybody because the dolls are dolls. So it's a very difficult question and it's a very uncomfortable question yeah. for a lot of people to think about. The doll there, part, is that what you're uncomfortable with? No, no the fact that, uh, I well, I think for some people, probably the doll part <laughs> is uncomfortable too. Yeah. But for many people, just the fact that we might allow or create a p opportunity for anybody to feel like they're living out this fantasy that we feel is wrong to do in real life, just that thought is very icky, mm. is very disturbing to many of us. And so I'm going to take you back to our pedophilia episode. I was just thinking yeah, that. When, just thinking that. Right, we were talking about this with, with Dr. James Cantor about computer-generated child pornography, 
where no children were harmed right. or would be harmed, but the, these men who otherwise have no other ways of satisfying their 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 sexual desires would be able to to do it in a way that doesn't uh, harm kids. And as Dr. Kinter was saying, it's it's we don't have a, a lot of empirical evidence to suggest either because you can't really experiment with these kinds of things, but it makes sense, perfect sense, and it does make perfect sense to me as well that this might be one way to get some of these needs met for some of these people because the reality is there are a lot of people who have rape fantasies on both sides of the equation, right? There are people who want to feel like they are being taken against their will and not just women. I know that's pretty cliche that women Mm -hmm. have rape fantasies. No, men have rape fantasies too. There are people who have these fantasies on the other end of the equation where they want to, they have this very strong urge to pin someone rapist, down yeah. and and kind of force themselves onto someone who's who's unwilling. As long as we understand and it is being presented in a way that, look, the reason why this is okay is because they are dolls mm. <laughs> that are not human beings and can really provide or not provide consent. They're not being harmed in the process. They are objects. All right, so let's take these one by one, Dr. Jana. So is it reinforcing rape culture? I don't think it's reinforcing rape culture. I think what it is doing is acknowledging that humans have, many humans have some of these needs. And if they're being satisfied in inappropriate ways, they have very high potential to harm people. Piggybacking on that, her follow-up to that was, is it actually an outlet for men who have fantasies? And that's what you were saying. That's I, exactly th- I what think it absolutely can be. Yeah, I think, look, there's nothing wrong with having rape fantasies. There is something wrong with carrying them out in a way that harms people. That's why, and very often, rape fantasies, like for the people who have them on the on the receiving end, mm. is the, the fantasy really isn't about being completely out of control. There is something sexy about being taken and yeah. being overpowered. And But in the fantasies, it's always about actually enjoying it and being taken and overpowered by people who you want to be overpowered by and so on. So as long as these people find ways to satisfy their their, their fantasies in a, in a in an appropriate consensual way, basically, then I think that is potentially going to prevent future possible crime. So that was sort of final part. Mm-hmm. You you do see it as a possible deterrent. I, I think so, yeah. I think, again, I don't have hard evidence to say yeah. one way or another because it's uh, it's been very difficult to do this. And this is also but, brand new, too. I mean... Right, yeah. right, exactly. But I think that, yes, if these are men who know that if they were to satisfy their, their fantasies in a way that would involve raping, non-consensually raping living women, and this is their way to get some of that, that experience in a way that doesn't harm anybody, then yeah, I think potentially it would be a deterrent, yeah. I think that needs to be coupled with some form of, of therapy or work that... that and, and a level of awareness, level of social skills. And, and there are other ways to satisfy some of these needs. They're called BDSM and consensual non-consent scenarios, right? There, there are these rape scenarios where the sort of the, the alleged victim is basically consenting ahead of time to being taken as a victim. He or she in is a, in on it for lack right, of a better Right, exactly. Yeah. In, this, in this rape scenario and then you have one or multiple people who are the, the rapists, again in quotation marks, because in, in, this, in the way the scenario plays out, the victim 
so to speak, will be yelling and screaming saying no, but in reality they are cons- have consented to that prior to it. So there are other ways that people have been satisfying these needs in a, in a way that's appropriate and that doesn't actually harm anybody. And this is just another way of doing it. All right, let's go to our next question. I'm in a five-year monogamous relationship with an awesome partner. Our sex life has gotten continuously better as we've learned more about each other. Woohoo! Communi- Here's that second time oh, going yeah. into five-year. I don't know. How many times is that? That's no, five years. They probably had sex a lot of times over the five years. <laughs> yeah. uh, they've communicated better, and she has felt increasingly safe with me. She has been living with depression since her teenage years, though she has been in therapy and on medication for a long time and is quite happy and stable. She hasn't had a real depression event since we've been together. All right, so far, so good. Cool, so far, so good. This involves the use of SSRIs, which make it very difficult for her to orgasm. Uh, Dr. Jean, this is where I need you to step in for a moment. (laughs) What is an SSRI? You have no idea? No idea. Where have you been how living, I, Joe? How would I know what an SSIR was? SSRIs. Okay, SSRI. <laughs> can't even, oh my I God. can't even say it. What is it? <laughs> it is, sele- well, it stands for Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors. <laughs> oh my God, you should all see Joe's face right okay. now. Okay, can you put that in layman's terms? What does that mean? It's, it's an antidepressant. Okay. That's all it is. It is the generation of antidepressants that came onto the scene with, with Prozac, and then there have been several other versions of that ever since they act on the serotonin system in the brain i don't i don't know how much of this you no but I get you it. want but i get it th- yeah all they, right so she's taking these antidepressants and uh, i'll go on with the question which makes it very difficult for her to orgasm though she doesn't have any problem experiencing pleasure and isn't really bothered by this okay so here's the issue dr jana i'm mature enough not to hang my ego on the ability to give her an orgasm it's just something i like to not totally right off yet Mm. if there are specific things i could try with her permission that might work i'd love to hear about them she doesn't like oral or manual stimulation and prefers cuddling kissing and penetration and my playbook isn't particularly rich beyond those areas alternately if the fact that she's not bothered about it means that i should leave the ball in her court in this area that's solid advice as well (laughs) okay so i think the first question around this is, are SSRIs something that can affect ability to orgasm? And indeed, that is one of the side effects of these SSRIs. Interesting. It's it's funny, very often when people go in to their psychiatrist and, and uh, doctors asking for help with depression, and they put them on these SSRIs, they tell them about all sorts of side effects, but they rarely mention the sexual side effects. And there mm. are some sexual side effects. Some people respond to the SSRIs by uh, losing libido, by losing sexual desire to right. begin with. And then another side effect is delayed orgasm. So either kind of prolonging these orgasms for whatever amount of time or leading to the inability to orgasm altogether. In fact, SSRIs are one of the ways that people have been treating premature ejaculation in men. Wow. So, I mean, obviously there are many other different ways to approach that and, and people have, but then sometimes if they've tried everything and it's still not satisfactory, the amount of time that a man can last, then they might be put on SSRIs and that will prolong their orgasm. So if Justin's girlfriend was someone that, someone who was already 
kind of maybe taking a long time to orgasm or struggling with orgasm in general, then the SSRIs may have exacerbated that issue. So this is a pretty common thing. She's not the only one. Now, it's without not... getting too clinical, Dr. Jana, you know, we've had the, the discussion about the G spot and finding mm-hmm. a, a way to uh, make a woman orgasm. Why do the SSRIs affecting the G spot in that way? Is there is there a reason? Because because don't you always tell me like, hey, if you try hard enough or you get to a certain spot, it'll hit. No, no, that's not about the G spot or the clitoris or anything. It's not about the sensation that is being felt in the body. And as Justin describes, she doesn't have any problem experiencing pleasure. So it's oh. it, it seems to me that she is feeling all it the sensation. Feels good. It feels good. Okay. It's just getting over that hump, s- hump if you will, right? Yeah. That you know, very often you feel like, oh, you're right there or it feels amazing and you're right there. You just can't get over that hump. Mm. And I am not sure exactly what happens in the brain that prevents that from from taking place on SSRIs, but it is a relatively common side effect. And it is much harder for the male in this scenario because the one sentence, Dr. John, he says, she doesn't like oral or manual stimulation, which going back to our previous discussion is he's not even able to get in there (laughs) and try this. To well, stimulate it. Yeah. So so then the next question is, okay, what do we do about yeah. this? You know, what do we, we do something? Yeah. And to be honest, if she is happy with the sex that they're having, if she's not bothered by her lack of orgasms and the sex is pleasurable and enjoyable and she likes doing it and the lack of orgasm is not preventing her or kind of because for some people, you know, if you're not having orgasms, it's less of an incentive to have sex. Okay, so yeah. you might be having sex less. But if that's not the case, if she is enjoying it and she's engaging in all of the types of sexual activities that she wants to be engaging in, yeah. then I don't think he should be too worried about it. I know, as he says, right, there's an ego component yeah. to being able to make your woman come kind of thing. Even without the ego, it's just nice to be able to do that for your partner. Yeah. It 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 makes you feel good. And there's so many people that I hear that really get turned on by having their partners experience a lot of pleasure and orgasms. But really, the orgasm is not always the end-all be-all. There's certainly research showing that when people have orgasms, they're more likely to rate their sexual experiences as pleasurable and satisfying. There's no doubt about that. But the orgasm really isn't, for many people, the end-all be-all, especially if you I've been telling you that for six months, Dr. John. (laughs) Orgasm doesn't matter. Well, it does matter, but it matters to some people more than others. And I think very often when we talk about orgasm, especially when we talk about orgasm in these more kind of casual interactions or whatever, we're talking about scenarios where those experiences weren't very pleasurable to begin with, and that's why they didn't uh, end in an orgasm kind of thing. But it seems like what's happening here is these interactions are quite pleasurable for her. And as long as she's happy with it, yeah. I don't think that that he needs to be too worried about it. Now, he says, you know, yeah, she doesn't like oral manual st- stimulation, which we talked about is, we've talked about on the podcast in the past, that those two sexual acts very often are the acts that yeah. get women to orgasm. It's like the trinity or something like that. Yeah. The trinity of the holy trinity of, of orgasms <laughs> or something like trinity. that. Yes, yes, uh, yes. I, you know, I will say, Dr. John, this is just a, it's a very sweet email because mm-hmm. he's saying it's not the ego thing. It's mm-hmm. just, he's like, I want to find a way where this cannot bother me 
in, in a way that where I feel like I'm not fulfilling my end of the bargain. He's not fulfilling his end of the bargain only if she feels that way as well. Yeah. This is an agreement that is established between the two people in this particular relationship. And if, if her expectation for his end of the bargain does not include that she needs to have orgasms, then no big deal. Yeah. Right? And that is not to say they can't widen the repertoire of sexual activities that they engage in but again that's a that's a that's a negotiation that they need to have uh, between each other if she doesn't like oral or manual stimulation maybe she would like other kinky stuff or other kinds of activities or who knows public sex or this and that different different positions different whatever but she still might not end up having orgasms right. and and she's enjoying yeah. herself i mean as she's as long as she's enjoying herself i mean if she said mm-hmm. she probably wouldn't be hanging with the guy for five years <laughs> if it was shitty sex so take it w- what you will like she's she's with you this whole time so mm-hmm. so she must love you and must love the experiences with you so yes. take it for what it, for enjoy what it, is. it all right our next question comes from the twitter hey i just wanted to thank you for the casual sex project you're welcome Something I'm very passionate about. No, (laughs) I think it's truly eye-opening and it shows just how much people enjoy sexuality and the degree they're having them. I wanted to know from you, if you have a moment, have you ever heard of the term swolly before? S-W-O-L-L-Y. I think someone told me it was a combination of being a swinger and polyamorous, but I was curious about your thoughts about the concept and can both ideas or lifestyles coexist together? Swoley. Swoley. So to be perfectly honest, I'd never heard this term before. Wow. I had to Google it myself. You? Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. You're I, like the Encyclopedia Sexcanica here. Hey, people come up with these new terms all the time, and I can't be on top of everything all the time. And I will say I did Google it, and it shows up in the Urban Dictionary, not in your Merriam-Webster's <laughs> kind of thing, but yeah, it is in the Urban Dictionary. Yeah, you wouldn't expect it in the Merriam-Webster yet. So the Urban Dictionary says it's a cross between or continuum between swingers and polyamorous relationships. <laughs> so... Yes. Wow, we have a lot of questions about open relationships and, and stuff well, this time. Mm-hmm. because it's your fans, Dr. Gianna. They yeah, know that's, yeah, your, that's, yeah, that's yeah. Your, uh, your bag, babe. Right. What are the differences between swingers and poly? These are all types of consensually non-monogamous relationships, right? With the swinger type being more of a two people as a couple, as the romantic and sexual uh, union, who then decide to open up Typically, sexually, they decide to go and have sex with other people, and they often do it together as a couple. Right. They might bring in another woman, another guy, or another couple, group sex situation, go to a sex party, whatever it is. But very often, it happens together as a couple, and very often, it involves casual interactions, casual sex with these other people. No emotional connection. no emotional connection, going back to the whole bull (laughs) question (laughs) scenario where, yes, because if you allow for emotional connections, things can get more complicated. Yeah. And and and, it can get more threatening. And in layman's terms, from what we've discussed uh, polyamory uh, a few times on the show, polyamory basically, it's, you know, it's sort of like swinging, except there's more of an emotional connection with the other partners <laughs> to a certain extent. Yeah, yeah. Don't don't let the poly people hear that you described I, it as kind of like swinging. I know, it's not kind of like swinging. You know what I'm saying, though. <laughs> it's like it's, well, there's it is more a, of an emotional connection. It is an open relationship, obviously, mm-hmm. or some form of consensually non-monogamous relationship. But in the poly context, the emphasis is on emotional and romantic connection, relationship. Mm-hmm. with more than one person as opposed to just casual sex. Yeah. So, and you might have more of a closed off poly version like 
three people triad. all like a triad. Uh-huh. Yes, yes, very good. Mm-hmm. Or a quad. That's four. Yeah, that, that is four. So aren't you proud of me? How I got all these? <laughs> <laughs> You've gotten so good, man. I'm all grown up. <laughs> right. So you have either this more closed version where everybody is dating everyone, but it's not just sex. We're actually dating. We're having long-term... We're hanging out. We're going to the movies. We're having dinner. Yes. We're holding hands. We are staring into each other's eyes. We might even be telling each other that we're in love with each Mm. other with more than one person and so on. And for some people, that model works better because they do enjoy this deeper kind of emotional connection and and long-term thing that they can develop with people as opposed to the more casual, fleeting, sexual uh, connections only. So... Can you have a mix of these things? And I absolutely can. I think it's a, it's a continuum for mm. sure. And as you were talking about earlier, casual sex comes in many different forms. So on one end of the spectrum, you could have a very, very casual swinger scenario where the two people who are, who are in a long-term relationship will only have sex with complete strangers that they never see yeah. again. Or you could have, and I know a lot of people who have this couple-centric type of relationship, right, where these two people are the the main couple, they are in, maybe they're married, they're living together, they may have kids, they share all these responsibilities and, and, and things that couples do together. But the other people that they see on the side, the other partners that they have, are not just pure one-night stands with complete strangers. They can be kind of this more friends with benefits, like the bull yeah. in, in, the, in the previous question. And those can be kind of long-term friends with benefits, someone that you do like and you might be seeing in a more non-sexual context too. You might go and have dinner with every now and then and you might go to the movies and you might cuddle and watch uh, a show. Netflix, sure, and, like you do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, so let's let's try to paint the picture of a swole. So let's let's just be, keep it simple and make mm-hmm. it a triad. So say we have Jack, Alice, and Lucy and they're in this triad, but Lucy likes to get out there and swing with other people people okay so that, that would I make think, her a swoley right i think that's another way of defining what a swoley would be so what i was describing is one couple their behaviors with other people are kind of in between swinging and poly they still have this strong bond the strongest bond with one another very couple like mm-hmm. bond with one another but the other people that they see are not just random strangers that they might be one or two long-term friends with benefits. And I think that sort of relationship would fit kind of right in the middle between super kind of casual swinger and full-on poly. I think what you're describing is another version of what what the swally could be (laughs) referring to, which is people can have different types of relationship with different people. So there could be a triad, Mm -hmm. and the, the people in the triad are having a very polyamorous relationship between the the three of them. However, they could be having this more casual version of of swinging type hookups, thing, hookups, yeah. yeah on the with side. yeah, on the side with other people. And so I think that might be another kind of way to hmm. to describe what a swally would be. Yeah. So yeah, I think the two lifestyles can absolutely coexist. They it's a it's a spectrum. It's not an either or. People will have different types of relationships, even with the same people over time, right? It's not an either or. So there's some stigma or 
different subcultures that go with these different labels and some people really don't like one label versus the other and and you can hear you know swingers being like all oh those poly people and the poly people can be like oh those swinger people just use whatever description whatever label that whatever works, works for you don't use the ones that don't work for you if you don't like to get these labels attached to you and your relationships and your partnerships don't do it just say that you're some sort of open and you make it up as you go along and you do whatever works for you and your partners as long as it does just keep doing it live your true self is what they say exactly. i think that's in your instagram meme or something all right dr Jan, let's get one more question in here all right hello dr Vrangalova. did i get your name right there you did all right yeah. what is your take on circumcision and the hiv std claims tied with it do mm. you advocate for or against it being intact, I've always unfortunately been the subject of ridicule when intimate with women and reminded of not only how unsightly, but unsanitary because of the foreskin. So I've always thought of having it done. Any words of advice or studies that may help me make a decision? Oh, this is such a loaded question, yeah. especially in this culture. Especially so... for when it leads to surgery. So t- be careful. <laughs> Give us some thought here, Dr. Surgery Jana. that is irreversible, yeah. right? This is body modification that is irreversible. Mm-hmm. Once you cut that foreskin off, there's no going back. So actually, there's there's a lot here to unpack. One question is... Is there evidence that circumcision mm-hmm. lowers your HIV and other STI risk? Okay. And there is some evidence to suggest that there has been, there have been a few studies done in Africa. There are experimental studies well, where like half of the people get circumcised and half the people don't get circumcised. And then they track them over time to see what percentage of them contracted HIV or didn't. And then there are other more kind of correlational studies done in the U.S. where they just get a big group of people. They ask them, are you circumcised? Are you not? And then have you ever gotten whatever, HIV, yeah. herpes, STD. and any STD. And in both types of studies, there is some evidence that the people who are circumcised have somewhat lower rates of okay. STIs and HIV. Now, when you say somewhat... The difference, well, in Africa, the difference seems to be bigger. In the U.S., it does not seem to be that big because okay. also the base rate for, for HIV and STIs is not that high. But the, but it does seem like there are cells in the foreskin that can get infected. Oh, okay. And the more of those cells you have, obviously, present uh, in your body, the higher your chances of contracting something. That said, I think that that benefit, if... That is the case. If this really is a benefit, yeah. uh, which right now the the CDC uh, does recommend it as a does recommend circumcision as a benefit to lowering STI risk. Yeah. However, I think that should be really weighed against other things. Like, do you really want to hang your sexual health to circumcision versus not circumcision? I would think maybe condoms hmm. would be a more reliable yeah. way of of doing it. Also, it has to be weighed against things like pleasure and uh, enjoyment and it's funny in the u.s we've developed this notion of uncircumcised penises being as he puts it unsightly and unsanitary but the reality is only about 30 percent of the world population is circumcised wow the vast majority absolutely 30 holy cow that percentage is much higher in the U.S. because the U.S. has been just so aggressively circumcising boys for non-religious reasons. But aside from the U.S. and to lower extent Canada, the only places in the world where men are routinely circumcised are the Muslim world and the Jewish world. Wow. And they do it for religious reasons. Sure. The rest of the world, most of Europe, 
all of Central and South America, uh, most of Asia, the non-Muslim parts of uh, Asia, they're not circumcised. Nobody is circumcised there. Huh. And in those, and I, I grew up in a culture that did not circumcise boys. And so for me, uncircumcised penises are beautiful. <laughs> <They're>, <laughs> they are natural. They're more beautiful than circumcised penises. And as long as you have access to running water and soap, it is pretty easy to keep them clean. Yeah. There is certainly no doubt that there is smegma that is being created mm -hmm. when you have a foreskin that if you don't wash on a regular basis right. can get a little smelly and, <laughs> and gooey and all that, but that is easily taken care of with access to running water <laughs> and soap. So I think that because this is a body modification that is irreversible, and is not medically necessary. I don't see the small reduction in STI risk as an absolutely necessary medical intervention that parents should choose for their kids when these kids have no say in the matter. Yeah. So I, I am very much against this non-consensual circumcision, routine circumcision that, that parents just decide to do to kids. I think circumcisions should be something that grown men, mm. adult men, decide whether they want to have or not once they have turned 18 and they have all the relevant information about the pros and cons and how they want to live their lives. So there, there's been a big debate in the academic world over whether removing the foreskin re removes some of the pleasure, reduces some of the pleasure. But there is no doubt that there are, just like there are cells in, in the foreskin that yeah. can get infected, infected with uh, viruses and bacteria, there, there are receptors in the foreskin that can feel good. Mm. And so there, there's probably a fair amount of, of sensation being removed when the foreskin is removed. There's also the issue of physics in terms of cir uh, w with circumcised and, and uncircumcised penises when it comes to penetration. Mm. When you have a foreskin, there is so much less friction in the act of penetration because the, 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 the penis with the foreskin goes in and then the foreskin itself kind of stays in place while the penis, the shaft of the penis kind of glides in and out of the foreskin without creating a lot of friction with the vaginal wall or the anal wall each time it goes in and out. When you have a circumcised penis, because there's no foreskin, every time you go in and out, there's all the friction against the vaginal or anal um. wall that happens, right, with yeah. every thrust. The buffer. There's no buffer. There's no buffer. But with with uncircumcised penises, you do have that buffer. And that makes for more enjoyable experience for a lot of people because that friction, it puts a lot of kind of strain on the body. Yeah. It wears you out sooner. You need a lot more lube. Mm. When you're having sex without a condom, which is the case for most long-term relationships, yeah. right, you would be having sex without a condom, and you need a lot less lube. You need a lot less prep time, you can go longer, there's less wear and tear on the body, on the receptive partner, as well as on the on the insertive partner, wow. when there is a foreskin that, you know, is not the case when there isn't. Wow, you're foreskin. selling me on the foreskin. I wish I could get mine back, but I can't, right? It's gone. <laughs> no, you can't. It's oh. kind of it's kind of gone. Right. So yeah, the, the bottom line is there are pros and cons to both. And I think every person should weigh the pros and cons however they see fit once they are at an age that they can do this. Wow. I personally really love foreskins. You're a foreskin yeah, fan. Yeah, I'm a foreskin fan. Team I get foreskin. very, very happy <laughs> because it's, it's, a, it's a rare occasion yeah. or relatively rare here in the U.S. I get very happy when, when I run into an uncircumcised penis. I get like giddy like a schoolgirl. Wow, you run into the uncircumcised penis. That's really weird. <laughs>
Stop <laughs> stop running into them, all right, Dr. Shana? All right, well, I hate to cut you off, pardon the pun, but... <laughs> we, we, Please don't cut it off. We need to uh, wrap things up here. And Sex Question Palooza, the sequel is done. What an educational experience. I learned yeah, some things along the way there. Right. And I think you learned some things along the way there from me. Probably not. But, yeah, uh, maybe. But you had to have fun. I don't know. <laughs> we like to have fun. But we... I think really enjoy these uh, sex question paloozas now that we've done two of them. Please send us more questions for the next round of this, which we're probably going to do one more time before we take a break for the summer. Awesome. The tr- so it'll be a trilogy. That'll be, the be part trilogy, three. Yeah. yeah, for this first season of the Science of Sex podcast. So you can do that by writing to us at the Science of Sex podcast at gmail.com. You can tweet at Dr. Jana or the Science of Sex podcast. You can send a message on Facebook, whether Dr. Jana's Facebook or the Science of Sex podcast Facebook. You can write to Dr. Jana, Jana, drjana.com. You can, I don't know, DM me on Instagram. Twitter, anyone. (laughs) Yeah. However you find us, send us your questions. We would love to answer them on the podcast. Cool. Uh, What do we have next week on the Science of Sex, Dr. Jana? We have Dr. Christian Joyal. I think I'm pronouncing his name right. Yeah. He's from Canada, and he's been doing a lot of research on fetishes or unusual sexual fantasies and interests. So, so we're going to be talking about paraphilias, unusual sexual fantasies and desires, and uh, it's going to be kinky. All right. Well, Dr. Jana, please be careful running into uncircumcised penises. <laughs> I will see you next time. Yes, I will be very, very careful. I will try to avoid all the circumcised penises and just run into uncircumcised penises. <laughs> just run into them. Make sure you rate and review the podcast on iTunes if that is how you listen to us. We will see you next time, Dr. Jana. Thank you. Bye. Bye. The Science of Sex is produced in New York City. To connect with the hosts, go to drjana.com and joepartavila.com. Like us on Facebook at the Science of Sex Podcast or follow us on Twitter at Science of Sex Pod. For more sex science, read Dr. Jana's column at Forbes.com. This has been The Science of Sex. 